We're going to continue our study, Jerusalem Meets Rome and Finds Babylon, the study in church purity. What is the gospel? How easy is it to get the gospel confused? It must be pretty easy because there are a variety of places you go and ask what the gospel is. It has something to do with feeding the poor. Other places you go, it has something to do with being the elect. Other places you go, it's all about an ethical way of living. A variety of places you go, you pick up on the gospel a little bit differently. The message of Jesus Christ was not a thoroughly well-organized message. When it left, what people were talking about was all they had was the Old Testament, okay? No New Testament's written. No simple Romans road to have to read. There is just this Old Testament scripture. And it's full of Jesus Christ all over the place, but you've got to find it. You've got to know where it is. It's not, uh, and as we've tried to share with you, Jesus came at a time when the scribes had been collecting all the books of the Old Testament and now had them in a readable format and it had it a way where people could buy those for their own churches. Or buy them, I shouldn't say churches, buy them for their synagogues. So they were studying the Word of God. By the time Jesus gets there, there's already good studies going on in synagogues located all over Israel. And remember, Jesus is coming to Israel for Israelites. He's not coming for uh, the, the other people of the world. He's coming to fulfill a covenant promise that was made to the Israelites. Now, after he fulfills it, it's going to be opened up to the rest of the world too. But he's got to get that fulfilled first. So every place he's going, people already know the scriptures he's talking about. So he can read from Isaiah uh, 53, or I should say Isaiah uh, 11, or in 61, where the Spirit of the Lord is on him and it's anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor and heal up the brokenhearted and bind up all the wounds and that sort of thing. And they already know. They're not having to say, whoa, what does that mean? You know, they already know what it is. And Jesus is saying, here's what it says. Here I am. Wow, that's a big deal. That is the message that everybody's going to take away. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Old Testament prophecy. And that's what they went every place from synagogue to synagogue, from place where they could find communities together that knew what the scriptures were, and they could share that with them. Ultimately, they're going to go beyond that as they get out in Macedonia and Corinth and other places like that, where maybe there are not as many Jewish people, and they're going to start trying to share with them who Jesus is uh, as a resurrected king. Well, tonight, what we want to look at is church history in the book of Acts. Um, uh, some people are not particularly interested in church history. I hope we can make it uh, lively enough for you that you'll appreciate church history. All I want to know is, how do we get where we are today? Are we demonstrating what Jesus was teaching in the first century? Do we have to? Have we modified what Jesus was teaching to the point now that it's unrecognizable? If the Lord Jesus came back, would he recognize it? If the apostles came back and looked at it, would they recognize this must be the church? Or would they say, why do you guys do that? Where'd you get these buildings? Nice buildings. How, what, what was that part of the service? What, what were you doing there? Would they ask that or would they say, we get it. You guys are doing just the same thing we were doing. 
This is what the gospel is. Was the message the same? Or are we doing what we were supposed to do? Well, what we want to try to do is see what formed the church that made it what it is today. So uh, let's look at church history in the book of Acts. Father, thank you so much for letting us have the opportunity to look at the Word together, to study the history of this together, to see how the church did get formed. And now we're going to thank you for what you're going to do as you open our hearts and our minds to these truths. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Taking a look at your uh, notes for tonight, uh, letter A, most of what students of the Bible, especially the New Testament, um, what they study is Western. In, most of the New Testament the studies uh, is Western in its viewpoint coming from the book of Acts. In other words, uh, Israel is the center of the world. Okay, So as Israel being the center of the world, everything that's to the west of that is called a Western thought. Everything that's to the east of that is Eastern thought. Everybody see where we're coming from? So what we usually get a, a view of in our history is Western thought, and primarily that's European Western thought. It's not, not the top of Africa Western thought. It's definitely not Egyptian thought, or what you get is Western European thought. They'll call it Western civilization. Everything you study is all going to be about that. Because the church was centered, or became centered in Rome. But that's not where it started. It started in Jerusalem. So um, let's pick up with number one under A. Paul's missionary journeys went west toward Europe. As a matter of fact, if you remember right, Paul took off going west because he wanted to go all the way to Spain. That's where he wanted to wind up. He understood there were Jewish people living out there. He wanted to get there and get the gospel to them. But he's got to get through all these other countries first. So he heads up and starts start, uh, creating churches in Crete, in Cyprus, then works his way up into Turkey. He's creating churches in Turkey and does all that in his first journey, comes back and reports. Second journey, he goes back to visit all the churches he's done before. Macedonia is saying, come on over here. So he goes over to Macedonia. He wanted to go east toward China, but the Holy Spirit said, no, I want you to go west. So he went to Macedonia. There he's got uh, Berea, Thessalonica. All of those were in Macedonia. But he travels down Macedonia and starts making his way into Greece. And when he gets to Greece, he goes to Athens, he goes to Corinth. Good day, sir. Good to see you. Good to see you. And he's working his way into all of those countries there and ultimately works his way over to Rome. So that's where he went. That's where most of the other things are going, but that's not where everybody went. So I want you to see what we can pick up from that. The information, number two, the information we most often read is that of Paul's encounter with the western part of the Roman Empire. So as we tried to tell you, there's a whole lot of things going on in the Roman Empire. There is the whole Roman religion itself. That's got a lot of Greek elements in it, but it's a Roman history itself. And there is an entire um, segment of Rome that's devoted to the military because the military was considered the important part of the Roman Empire. Why? Roman Empire is conquering things. You've got to have an army to do conquering. You just don't buy your way into that. So they were, that was largely around that. So there was really a Roman military cult uh, 
Matter of fact, a lot of the things that were done to Jesus by the Romans were from that military court, cult. The, the way they dealt with Jesus in his trial. The, there was a, the, a cult that uh, one of the things they do to the new emperor, or the new leader of the country, was to put a robe on his back and a crown on his head. And they chose to take a robe to put on, the, on his scarred up back. I mean, this is a back that's been opened up like hamburger, and they're putting a robe on that. So you get this purple robe that's going on that, and they're going to give him a, a staff. So they gave him a reed, and they put a crown of thorns on his head. That's all things you would do to coronate an emperor. So they're just doing what the Roman cult knew to do. Paul is going to have to encounter that Roman cult. He's going to have to encounter every idolatrous practice that's going on in each one of the different countries. Each, each city-state that he goes to has got a different idolatrous practice. So you've got the, the, the practice of uh, like Acro-Corinth. That's strictly a fertility cult. So it's going to be totally acceptable for everybody to go to prostitutes. And that's what they did. So when the church gets saved... They're kind of scratching their head and saying, it's still all right, isn't it, to, to, you know, for, for blessings and things like that to go to the temple prostitute, right? Well, Paul has to write a whole chapter in there and say, no. As a matter of fact, it's not right. You don't do that anymore. That's done. You're finished with that. So every place they went, they had to encounter some different idolatrous practice. How effective would the church be? Well, let's look at uh, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul's really excited. He didn't get to spend much time with the Thessalonians. They ran him out of town. So he didn't get to spend much time with them. But let's just look at the first chapter. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. He writes, starting with, uh, well, let's start with verse 1. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church at Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And this was our, our verse for last Sunday, our memory verse for last Sunday. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. So these guys are getting on evangelism. Now watch what happens in verse 9 here. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, guys, every city had its own idol. They had its own history, its own legacy, its own idolatrous practices. And when Paul came into Thessalonians, there was no different. They had the same kind of things going. 
But these Thessalonians, when they heard this gospel, actually believed it. And as they believed it, now they have to turn their back on the whole cultural way of doing things. You follow me? If any of you have ever tried to uh, uh, speak with someone who's been raised in a particular kind of religion, it doesn't matter whether that was Catholicism or Baptist or whatever it was, when you introduce some new idea to them, <gasps> they got to panic. What are you doing? That's, that's not right. We know that's not right. Well, how is it you know that's not right? Well, that's not the way I was brought up. Well, yeah, that, and that's the way they've got to contend with. So if you, if you follow what's going on here, here's a close-knit community that's got this idolatrous practice. Here's a group of people that walk right out of it. Say, we're not doing that anymore. What do you mean you're not doing it anymore? All our business deals are cut on this. When, when we go to create a business deal, we're doing that in the presence of this idol. And, and that's the only way we can cut business. So if, you, if you're not going to do that anymore, we're done with your business. You can imagine now the affliction that's going to come from that. You follow it? And once you get started with that kind of thing, there are people make fun of you. They're on you all the time. Your family's embarrassed by you. you you've, you've really got them going. So that's what they had to contend with. All right? So Paul's doing that, and he's meeting up with the Roman culture. Is the church going to be affected by that? Yes, in some places it was. In some places, the church encountered some of the idolatrous practices that they adopted to the church because it was just too hard to give up for that community. So some of those got adopted in the community. All right. uh, number three, in brief, the church started in Jerusalem and moved out from there. Though we're not told a lot about all the places believers went to create communities of believers, one might call churches. But we do know this. We know that um, believers went to Antioch in Syria. Now, there's a good reason to go to Antioch in Syria. Antioch is a good, rich uh, territory of great economy, but it was also a rich territory in intellectual achievement. Good libraries there, good intellect. So that was a natural place for them to go. Nice big Jewish community there. So you'd have plenty of people you could look at. But that Jewish community is not a Jerusalem Jewish community. It's a Hellenized Jewish community. So it's turned more Greek. So it's doing Greek things in it. And Paul felt very comfortable with that. Why? Paul was from Tarsus, also a Hellenized Jew. So he had learned a long time ago how to make his faith work within a Greek situation. God was so wise in choosing him. You know what? Because he chooses him who has been trained as a Pharisee. That means this guy is steeped in the Word of God. So he knows what the Word of God has to say. But he also was a Hellenized Greek. So he understood what to do in Greek cultures. So God's, God's making a great choice with this guy. Uh, so every place he travels, he's already got Greek behind him. He's already got understanding Greek philosophy because you have to study that when you're a Hellenized Greek. You had to do all those things, and he's got a good handle on what to say to people. Uh, so let's turn just for a moment to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 11 had told us that the 
eleven twenty six had said uh, we found him. We brought uh, we brought him to Antioch. They brought Paul to Antioch. So it was for a whole year. They assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And it says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now chapter thirteen. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers: Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Stop just for a moment. I want you to look at how cosmopolitan this group is. You've got Paul and Barnabas there, but you also have one who's called Simeon, who's called Niger. What does that mean? You ever heard of Nigeria? You ever heard of the country Niger? He was black man. And from a black country. All right, now it goes next. The next guy is um, Lucius of Cyrene. Well, that's a whole different ethnic group. Uh, what I'm getting at here is, is the church at Antioch was a multi ethnic church. Why? Because it's a multi ethnic area, it's cosmopolitan. You can have all kinds of people that live there. And they are in an intellectual center as it is. They're always wanting to learn some new information. Once they learned it and studied it, they became a part of the church. And since you have all these intellectual guys there now, you've got a great teaching church going for it. So this church became a powerful teaching church. All right. So uh, that went on there. Notice how it was as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work. Uh, as I recall, Barnabas is from Cyprus. Well, that's yet another ethnic group. And you got Saul, who's a, a Hellenized Jew from uh, uh, in Tarsus. Then having fasted and prayed, laid hands on them, they sent them away. That's the first missionary endeavor that we see from a church. A church is actually calling people. They, they see the call of someone. Uh, matter of fact, when, when you um, send missionaries out, you're not supposed to say we're sending you out. You're supposed to recognize their call to go. When we sent Steve and Stephanie Kelly from this church to go to uh, Bangladesh, it was because we had spent time with them and recognized that God had called them to do this. This wasn't just a, a, you know, a, a Peace Corps effort to go help some people. No, they, they were interested in using their medical skills but that's not what they had in mind. They wanted to use those medical skills to bring compassion to those people in order that they could share with them the Lord Jesus Christ. And kids, that's exactly what they've done. They have used those medical skills and a trained Christian staff to be around them. They're social workers. That's what they, that's what they have to call them, social workers, to be around them. They follow up on them. They take good care of them. And a lot of times they'll stop and say, and this has happened multiple times, Someone laying on that table would say, you know I'm Muslim, right? Yep. Aren't you Christian? Yes. Why are you doing this? Well, because you're sick. But I'm Muslim. Yes, and sick. So they take care of it, and after a while... You know, they, when they leave there, they follow up on them back at their home again. And the next thing you know is those people are saying, tell us about Isu. 
tell us what you mean by Isu. We, we, we must not have understood everything there is to know. Why does Isu like us? Because Isu never has liked us before. Well, now they get to share with them the gospel. Kids, just make a long story short, 11 churches have been planted because of that. You follow that? That's making a good use of what you're doing. But we recognize their call. They were not looking for an occupation. It's a whole different thing. Some people who've gone to Bangladesh and and other countries too have gone because they wanted to do some service. Some have gone because it looks good on their resume to say that they served in a foreign country. That's the way it is. Uh, That's tougher work to serve in a foreign country. Others have understood their calling and they're staying right with it. They've been through Bangladesh through thick and thin because they love the people of Bangladesh. Paul and Barnabas, they're recognizing the call of Paul and Barnabas to go, not just that Paul and Barnabas had said, hey, we'd like to try something different. Let's go to other countries and do this, all right? Uh, we, let's see, we know from number five, we know that some believers had gone all the way to Damascus, Syria, for Saul was going there to arrest believers. So if you remember, that's what converted, that's what brought Paul to conversion. He's on his way up to Damascus to arrest people up there because the way has made it up there. And on the way there, God says, what do you think you're doing? Stop. You're going to have to stop this right now. So you go on up to Damascus and I'll tell you what you're going to do. All right. So it's, it was a complete conversion for him. Number six, we know also that whenever the persecution broke out in Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen, it sent believers everywhere preaching the word. So look at Acts chapter 8 with me just for a moment. Acts chapter 8. Stephen is stoned in chapter 7. He dies uh, in chapter 7. And then it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, uh, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. It says in verse 4, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. All right, that's, that's what Acts chapter 8 tells us what's going on. Does not tell us where they went. We have to look at church history to find out where did they go? What, what were you doing? When, when you left here preaching the word, what happened? Well, we know that some of them made it to Antioch. Um, so we'll get to that in just a minute. All right, we know that whenever the persecution broke out, so how many locations would it have represented when they're leaving there? We do know that many of these went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. What teachings might they have encountered as they preached? What practices from their former belief system did the converts bring into their newfound faith? Well, here's what we can know. I think it's, I think it was the coast of Cyprus that um, King Midas had a daughter. And that... Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Cyprus. Uh, that daughter uh, was named Europa. And the legend goes that his beautiful daughter was loved by um, Jupiter. Or uh, what's, the other na- what's the other name? Yeah, go back and forth between Roman and myth- mythological. It was love. Uh, Zeus. He was loved, she was loved by Zeus. But he knew he couldn't ask Midas for her because Midas would never give him to him. 
So he went down and uh, disguised himself as a bull, a beautiful white bull. And she was fascinated by this beautiful white bull. And he said to her, why don't you get on my back? She said, I don't know. I, that's kind of dangerous, isn't it? He said, no, I'll be very gentle with you. She gets on his back, and he takes off. He kidnaps her. He takes her back to his homeland, and that's where the name for the continent Europe comes from. Now, just not long ago, I saw in the, uh, I think it was uh, the headquarters of the European, uh, uh, what was that, European Common Market? There is a bull with a woman riding on it. There. That was cool. I thought, okay, I get it. Then, last summer, Prince, who's the king now? Charles is. Is Charles who's the king of England now? Okay. When he was still Prince Charles, he had, um, he was the master of ceremonies at the European Games. And at these European games, of all the crazy things, they've got all these people dressed up in all these flowing gowns and all that, and they're all dancing around in there doing all kinds of crazy things. And they're building this great big tower thing, okay? And this great big tower thing they're calling Babel. So here's this great big tower thing. There are people living in this tower all around there. You know, they're waving at everybody. Hi, we're living in this tower of Babel here. In comes to the that, uh, whole ceremony a big bull. And this big bull is, you know, hogging down to people and, and mooing and carrying on like crazy. And one of the women comes by and woos him and controls him. And then all of a sudden, this thing, something just shatters. And all these balls, beautiful balls, just go flying out through the atmosphere, and they're returning. And when they return, these comets, and what, what, I should say it better than that. When these balls flew away, on the screen, it's showing where these balls wound up. And these balls wind up in people's hands. These are balls of light. These balls wind up in people's hands, and they're looking these balls over, and it transforms them. They become new people, and now they're transported back to the Tower of Babel. And they go then and start worshiping the bull. And they're bowing before the bull, and the bull now is tamed. Uh, He's not wild anymore. He bows down before all of them, and the world's at peace. Now, kids, that seems a little strange to me. It is a review of the old pagan way that Europeans lived. Why are they doing that now? That's what they were encountering. Now, here's the deal. If believers in Christ, who should know better, think that's really a wonderful thing to watch, how beautiful, what a a great thing that was, and suck up any of that stuff, you'll understand how easy it was for believers to get twisted as they brought the gospel into each of these communities. Because each, each community uh, all year is going to be having ceremonies. 
I think I told you once that I was in India. We were at a, um, uh, one of the um, more rural tribes. Um, they're, they're considered low class, the whole nine yards. But we were at their church. And they were so gracious to us. I mean, it, it was really neat. They, they washed our feet before we came in. You know, they're giving us all this nice treatment. They tied a, band, a bandana around our heads. I didn't know what that meant exactly. I hope it wasn't something bad. Uh, I wind up with this bandana in my head. And as we are having this meeting, it's, we're, we were nearly always there in Siliguri during the time that's called Festival of Lights. And the Festival of Lights uh, is all about the, uh, I forget what her name is now. She's got uh, three sets of arms. Uh, and there's two up this way and two out this way and two down this way. And she's, she's violent, very violent. But uh, she also is um, a fertility goddess. And that's what this Festival of Lights is all about. So at the end of our service, we were called on to uh, stand at the front, and people would come and pray with us. So as people were coming, we were praying with each person that came, and a lot of them had great concerns about, uh, um, since they are of a lower caste of people, that their kids could get into school and actually get something done. So those were the kind of prayers, and, and a lot of prayers for sickness and that sort of thing. But I was looking over in the line next to me, and there's a girl standing there, and she keeps going back and forth like this. And pretty soon I see her eyes just roll up and down she went, flat. I mean, she didn't try to stop. It was just And so that I said, hey, we need some help here. Everybody just ignored her. Nobody said anything to her, didn't do anything with her. So they just kept coming and praying, and finally, I couldn't stand anymore. I said, hey, would somebody check and see if that girl's dying? Well, there was a nurse that came by, and she said, okay, oh, oh boy. You know, she's doing all the, she's not having a seizure. The girl just was out. Okay. So I'm asking questions about it. And Yajak is telling me, stop, stop. She's fine. She's fine. Don't ask. Stop. Okay. So I shut up about it. So I waited for a couple of days. I said, what was that about? Please don't ask. She's okay. She's okay. Okay. So finally one day he tells me, well, we had told the kids in that village, don't go to the Festival of Lights. Because if you go to the Festival of Lights, there are spirits there that will take you over. You don't want to be there. Don't go. She went. And the elders had to pray over her. So where, when they took her out, they took her to uh, her, like her grandmother's house, and all the elders went over and prayed for her, and she was delivered. I saw her two years later in the uh, audience. She was there now. She was restored, fully recovered. Kids, every time you go into any place where a principality is in charge of it, you are invading his territory. You understand where I'm coming from? And he's not going to let those people go easily. So that's what spiritual warfare is about. That's why the scriptures tell us we're not wrestling against uh, flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness stage, spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what that was. And uh, Yajak, I think, was a little ashamed that was going to happen like that. But there wasn't any shame in it. 
he, he knew what happened, and it was a, a pretty simple story. Now, that's what I'm saying. When, each, when every time a missionary went into a town, he did not know which kind of thing he was going to confront, but he did know this. We're not wrestling with the people here. We're wrestling with the principalities and powers that are giving these people these kinds of ideas. And that's who we're wrestling with. We're going to bring them truth. When we bring truth, that causes all of the lies that have been told by the principalities and powers to be stopped. And they're not going to let them go easily. If you can't let them go, you're going to do your best to infiltrate what that church is and give that church practices that it wouldn't normally have. All right. Thoughts, comments, questions before I, before I go any further? All right. Let's pick up number seven. We know that Philip carried the gospel into Samaria. Their faith had been close to Judaism, but definitely not the same. Because uh, this, the Samaritans, as you recall, was the group that was left behind in the Babylonian exile. They'd been left behind in the Assyrian exile. They were uh, poor people. Uh, they intermarried with some of the people who were left there, but they tried to hold on to some remnants of the, of the Judaism faith. Now, you have a Bible, more than likely several of them, and you can look back up again and find out what you're supposed to believe, what you're supposed to practice. Okay? They didn't have that. They don't, they don't have pocket New Testaments. They don't have pocket um, Torahs. They don't have any of that. So they tried to remember as best they could, what's Torah say? What are we supposed to do? And so they recognized they have to have a mountain someplace to, to worship on because it's got to be a high place. So they would put that together. Well, when the Jews then returned from the Babylonian exile and they saw all these people, they said, you're not part of us. They said, yeah, 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 we're your cousins. No, not doing this, you're not. You're not our cousins. And they hated each other. Well, Philip got to Samaria and he's preaching there. Now let me ask you, what practices do you suppose came over into the faith that Philip is giving them? You follow where I'm coming from? What kind of practices had they been doing in Samaria that might have been introduced into the church? Because the church does not have a handbook. You follow me? When somebody goes in to start a church, there's not a church organization handbook. There's not a constitution. There's not anything. You're preaching to them Jesus, and you're counting on the Holy Spirit to be what teaches them the things they're supposed to know. That's all you got. It's, it's going to be a while before Paul gets together an organizational structure, kind of borrowing from the synagogue, that's got deacons in it, that's got elders in it, that's got, uh, and the elders come in two forms, presbyteros and episkopos. That's two kinds of, of government. Uh, so it's, it's going to be a different situation. And when you don't have everybody on the same page, you try to get them on the same page. All right. All right. Number uh, seven then, or number eight. We know that the faith was on the Mediterranean coast of Israel for the Gentile centurion Cornelius lived there. He lived in Caesarea. So he lives there and he received the gospel with his whole house. What kind of church do you suppose formed there? He was devoted to God, full of good works, but he had not had a church structure here. Peter stayed with him for a few days. Okay, so Peter's the one who led him to Christ, led the family to Christ, and he stays with him a few days. Now, don't forget, Peter's a Jew, and he's in a Gentile home. Every day he gets up, he's wondering, how long before I'm getting in trouble here? 
How long before somebody turns me in for this? I'm not supposed to be in this Gentile house. I got this problem that they're unclean. I'm going to be unclean. Man, I won't be able to go to the temple for days because of all the uncleanness I am being in this home. But he stayed there with them nonetheless and taught them some more about the kingdom of God. So uh, I'm sure that Peter probably gave them some kind of structure, but I don't know what. Because even then are struggling with how, what is this new Samaritan church we're supposed to be in? What's the new Gentile church we're supposed to have? It came as a problem for him. We do know that Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven, came to live in Caesarea, and that was Cornelius City. He had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. It is likely that a church had formed there. It may have been more in the form of a Christian community rather than simply a church. So uh, when, when we think church, don't always think of what we have here. They didn't have a structure that was a church. They had a Christian community. They had a lot of believers that came together. They tried to meet in whatever house they could. Sometimes it'd be a synagogue. Sometimes it'd be a community center. Sometimes it'd be in the marketplace. Sometimes it would just be somebody's home. And they did not have necessarily a whole lot of structure to it. So number nine, it is obvious from the rest of the book of Acts that churches are being formed all over Turkey, Macedonia, and Greece, and at least as far as Rome. It's likely missionaries had gone west, to, uh, west of Rome as well. They usually follow the path of finding communities with a Jewish synagogue in it. Uh, by the way, whose holiday do we celebrate this Friday? St. Patrick. Anybody know how St. Patrick led the people to Christ? It was all done by community. When, when Patrick went into, when, it, when he wanted to share the gospel with somebody, he'd go to a village and he'd put an encampment outside that village. And that village was, the, or the encampment uh, took along brothers and sisters. This was, was, and sometimes they were married to one another, sometimes not. And as he, he would bring them to encamp around there, they, were, uh, they practiced guilds. They had certain crafts that they did. And with those crafts, the people from the village would come out and say, is that leather work? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's pretty. Yeah, I, I like that. It's practical too. Can I buy that? Yeah, we're selling them. Okay, and then it's, oh, what's that baked good? Man, that tastes really good. What is that called? And she'd tell them. So they're coming to this community, and as they come to this community, they would share with them about Jesus Christ. And as you share with them about Jesus Christ, it wasn't long until the whole village was coming to, to that encampment and enjoying the fellowship they had there. Pretty soon, the whole village would trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because of what they had seen with those people. And it all started with food, crafts, sewing things, um, sharpening tools, creating tools. Those were the things that these got beekeepers. A lot of the, the guys that travel with were beekeepers. And they started sharing with people what this honey stuff was. Oh, that's pretty good stuff, too. That's nice and sweet. Of course, later they made a little mead with it, too. You've got to have your alcohol. Um, but anyway, Patrick realized these people are in love with the number three. So Patrick picked up one of those little shamrocks. There it is, all three. And he shared with the chiefs and everyone he got a chance with, he said, see this shamrock? God wanted you to know about this shamrock. God's, God says that his whole throne is surrounded by emerald. And if you read uh, 
uh, Revelation chapter 4, sure enough, it's, a, it's an emerald rainbow, okay? And he said, you see this three right here? That's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're all connected. And they, they fell in love with that whole thought. So he used something very practical to them, and loved that, they, they loved that whole thought. He actually gained quite a bit of control of their practices rather than them giving his practices. Um, one thing they never did get rid of, though, was the blessings. Uh, the blessings and the use of um, herbs. Those things caught on, and the church made practice of those too. Uh, later, an- another time, we'll talk about that some, okay? Um, let's, let's pick up number 10. Though we know the Ethiopian official was converted to Christ and was at least headed back to his home in Ethiopia, uh, we don't know whether a church started there, but the Ethiopian Coptic church traces its beginnings back to him. A rather large and influential Christian kingdom would form from this church and its teachings. That's another area we don't ever get much about in our study of the church. But the church did go south into Africa and made big inroads into that. I know Dr. Livingston's going to be the one that comes later. Dr. Livingston came years after several Christian kingdoms had been formed there. Okay. And there was a, a big church, big community, Christian community, found all throughout Sudan, all throughout the, uh, what's, what's just been, is it um, Kenya? That's just below there. There were Christian communities there. Now, over time, they were overrun by Muslims and a variety of other things, but there were Christian communities there, as well as from Alexandria, Egypt, and the Ethiopian, uh, if I can see it, uh, I don't want to do that from your spec, your perspective. Okay, this the Nile's running up through here, and let's see, North Africa's over here. I guess I'll have to do it that way, so it's more like what your map is. Okay, from these two communities, the gospel spread across the north, and as it spread across the north over there, more and more great, solid Christian communities were formed in North Africa. You'll remember that one of the chief church fathers was the bishop of Hippo, which is a town on North African shores. That was Augustine. That's where he came from. So there was a big church movement along the north of Africa. And uh, years years later, I learned about a big church movement that had moved down to where... Um, um, Liberia? No. Yeah. Is it Liberia? No. I'm sorry. I've got the the Ivory Coast and all that, and that where Africa dips in like this. There was a big Christian community formed right there too. Years before any English missionaries got there, years before any, they were all African missionaries. We don't get much information about that because we largely think Rome is the whole deal, and it's not. All right, so let me go church history outside the book of Acts. Anybody got any questions or anything about what I said? How many of you are past boredom right now and you're into? <laughs> like, okay, here we go. Uh, outside the book of Acts, we know that a church known as the Syriac Orthodox Church formed in Antioch and went east. 
Eventually, it was known as the Church of the East, the East Syriac Church, the Nestorian Church, the Assyrian Church, and the Babylonian Church. There was a huge Christian community started in Babylon. Big one. There was also a large Jewish community already in Babylon, and they were using what uh, they created, what's known as the Babylonian Talmud. So there was a lot of stuff going on uh, in, in that section of the, of the country. Um, that church, the, the, East, the Church of the East, would split away from the Roman Catholic Church after the condemnation of the teaching of Nestorius over the person of Jesus Christ having one or two natures. The church at, uh, I think the church council at Ephesus is the one that condemned Nestor, uh, Nestorius. Nestorius said that when Jesus was here, he was in, he had two persons in one nature, that he was God and man in one nature. The council at Ephesus ruled, no, that's not true. He was God and man in two natures. That's, matter of fact, that's what you will probably believe today. Uh, that, that's the way that came up. That's what divided churches was a doctrine like that. So the church in the east said, nope, you've condemned our main teacher. We're not listening to you anymore. And so they split off. The Roman Catholic Church also included, well, let me, let me go ahead and finish this thought here. Okay. It was split away from the Roman Catholic Church after the condemnation and so on and so forth. We know they would encounter Zoroastrianism with its dualism. So that's going to be a big deal. Zoroastrian always had dualism, that this is true and this is not true. This is, this is God and this is Satan. So they have God and Satan as equal. Well, they're not equal. Uh, but the church would encounter that and pick up some of that dualism. So that's going to affect church doctrine. If you follow what I'm saying? It's going to affect church doctrine. Uh, uh, let me go to letter B in this one. We also know that a large Christian community took up dwelling in Alexandria, Egypt. It became an influential library and training center for Christianity. This was also home to many Jewish scholars. So we know there was one in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, the gospel spread across northern Africa at a pretty remarkable speed. Ultimately, one of the most influential of the church fathers came from North Africa, where he was Bishop of Hippo. That was Augustine. We also know from history that Arabia, particularly Mecca and Medina, had large populations of both Jews and Christians. Here, these people of the book would influence deeply a young man named Muhammad, who would be the founder of the Judeo-Christian heresy of Islam. Now, Muhammad was not literate. He could not read. He could not write. But he could listen. He was fascinated by the prophecies of the, that they were reading as the Christians and the prophecies of the Judeo Bible. He was fascinated by those people. He had a, a little trip where he went to a cave and he had a vision in the cave. So he went back as now he sees himself as a prophet. So he went back to the people of the book and offered his prophetic skills to the people of the book. Well, he wasn't literate. He, they did not see him as someone valuable to Jewish scholarship or Christian scholarship. So they rejected him. Not happy with that, he came back a little while later and said, look, I've learned a little bit more. I think I can be a prophet to you now. 
No, they said, you can't be a prophet. That set up his hatred for the people of the book. And that's when he started um, targeting Jewish populations and Christian populations to destroy them. They had, they had rejected him. He would destroy them. Later, after his death, his teachings were recorded by others who were literate. He did not write any of the Koran himself. And the literature in the Koran is what I just simply call a Judeo-Christian heresy. It contains some plagiarized parts of the Old Testament. It contains some parts of the New Testament. It contains a little bit of all of it, but it got shaded by his hatred for the Jews and the Christians who didn't receive him. Had they received him, it might have been a different situation, but they didn't. So that's obviously now 600 years from the time the church starts in Mecca and Medina. So, all right. Letter F, or letter E. We also know from history that Thomas, the disciple, is alleged to have made it to Hindu India and formed a church there. That church still exists. Uh, there are still people who attend that church there, and they are quite proud of their heritage that Thomas is the one who started it. The huge Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox church was founded in Turkey, centered around Istanbul. The southwestern parts of this church, matter, matter of fact, it's, it's often called the Greek Orthodox church. This is going to become a dividing point already between Roman Catholicism and uh, Greek Orthodoxy. They were once all together. It was all the Roman Catholic Church. But the Greeks insisted that since Paul had written in Greek, Greek is what we should be studying. The Romans, insisting that their native tongue was the better tongue, insisted that things be done in Latin. As a matter of fact, a lot of the Greeks despised Latin. They thought it was not clear, it was not clean, it was not a good thing to put the scriptures into. Um, matter of fact, uh, Jerome wrote um, the Latin Vulgate. Vulgate just means it's the common language. And that's the way they saw it. That's vulgar. This, this thing's dirty, okay? Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, practiced, practiced Greek, so they, they did a lot with that. Southwestern parts of this Turkish territory have been the center of much spiritual importance as the recent discoveries of places like Gobekli Tepe. Have, have any of you heard of Gobekli Tepe? Uh, guys, this is, this is a fascinating place. It's like 22 acres. Uh, it was clearly a worship spot, and there are some stones that are stacked up there, and they have on top of them, it's, it's all very well-cut stone, they, have, they form a T. Somebody lifted these tons of rock up on there and formed a T, and there's all kinds of writing on it. It's obvious that that was a high spiritual power place, uh, Gobekli Tepe, and it's in southwest Turkey. Uh, if you get a chance, look it up. There's some fascinating stuff going on there. I mean, there's Gobekli Tepe. G-O-B-E-K-L-I-T-E-P-E. There was a place of spiritual power. Missionaries in the Orthodox Church would reach into China. They followed a pattern of building training centers near populated centers. Marco Polo did not want to state what he found on his way to China because it would embarrass the church. 
Marco Polo found several of the, um, they don't call them mosques, monasteries, several monasteries with very plain um, mosaics, just like you would find in Istanbul. And that's on the way to China. He's finding these. And as he went in, he realized, man, these are Christian. And he think, he's thinking he's the first Christian to make it in this far. They already had monasteries built there, there and further on. They already had them. So it was, he was not the first. He didn't want to tell that story because he wanted the honor of being the first one there. All right. Um, much of the work missionaries do is in centers, wherever region they traveled, and the Eastern Orthodox Church split with the Roman Catholic Church in 1054 and lost its political kingdom to the Ottoman Turks in 1453. But the Ottoman Turks did let them continue practicing their faith as long as they continued to pay the tax. <laughs> all right. Now, you say, well, what, what difference does all that make? Makes big difference. I'll give you one real current thing that'll help. There is a battle going on in Ukraine. But that battle isn't just a battle about the Russians wanting to take it over and so on and so forth. This has to do with Russian Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, and the Roman Catholic Church. In addition to that, you've had all kinds of Protestants that have that moved into Ukraine and set up things there. The Roman Catholic Church was not, by agreement in Constantinople, was not ever supposed to cross the border of Constantinople. That's right at the, the mouth of um, uh, what the uh, Black Sea there where uh, Turkey is. They weren't supposed to cross over that, that line. But Roman Catholics set up monasteries in Ukraine. They set up churches in Ukraine which offended the Greek Orthodox in Ukraine. And battles ensued over that. That war was going on long before the one you have now. What's happening right now only exacerbated that situation, only has made it a little bit worse, because now they don't know who they can fight first. Because the Russian Orthodox Church said, wait a minute, this used to be a part of Russia. We have the right all the churches in Ukraine have to be Russian Orthodox. And, of course, the Greek Orthodox said, no, they don't. We got here first. This is Greek Orthodox. And, of course, the Roman Catholics said, yes, but we're the true church, so we have a right to be here. So they've had that battle going on for a long, long time. All right. Questions, comments? Anybody got anything? You want to? Yes, Doug. Yeah. You know, because it almost just felt like as we were going through that, it's like, oh, it's almost kind of like a modern version of different denominations. Yes, nothing's changed. Uh, where, where we wanted to go from is what we want to see is what did change the practices? How did people get these practices? How did people start doing these things? How did churches get involved with Easter egg hunts? How, how does that even happen? Uh, you know, what, what's, the, what's the meaning behind it? And that has to do with our encounter with Babylon in the Babylonian community. That was part of what they did. So all those practices got absorbed into the church some way. And yes, we are still fighting among ourselves. 
Uh, that, that's, it'll always be a struggle for a pure church. In order to go to the Word, you must believe that it's the final authority. If you don't believe it's the final authority, then it won't make much difference what the Word says. You, most, most churches struggle with this. Yes, they believe that the Bible is the final authority. But they also know what their tradition is, what's been handed down to them. So, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church, tradition is above the Bible. And because it's above the Bible, they go back to the tradition to see what you're going to do. Uh, the same thing was true in the um, Eastern Orthodox. After a while, they just simply followed the tradition of their church fathers, and that was a tradition that was held over what the Bible was. There's no such thing as a mass. Yet, how many churches can t- continue to have some type of a mass as if that's a genuine, Jesus did not give us that. That was not given to us. But you'd have to be saying that the Word of God has more authority than does the traditions of churches. Sometimes people just won't let it go. They've got to keep their traditions. Um, You know, you're, you're correct. Why did the Bible just call it baptism? Why does the Bible always just call it baptism? Well, that's because of the translator's choice. The translator knows that if he is just, baptism is just the anglicized Greek word. Because to be baptized is baptizo. That's the Greek word. So if you just say baptize, you can please everybody. Because if to you baptism means pouring water, then you're not going to argue with the Bible. Because the Bible just says baptism. But your tradition is outweighing what it said here. If you believe that sprinkling is adequate, then the word baptism, that's the way you've defined it. It's not going to bother you. You have uh, the, the, if someone who totally immerses, it's not going to offend them because there's the word baptism. It's just, it's just how I've learned to define baptism. And there are some who baptize you three times. Because you're supposed to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So rather than take them down this way, they take them face down, one, two, three. Okay, Is that what baptism is? Well, the word itself is, if, if you did a word study, it's not going to settle the question totally. Because the word baptize means to totally submerge. Boats were baptized into the sea. They were totally submerged, but yet there's some part floating out. A cucumber is baptized into brine and becomes a pickle. It's, that's a total submersion. So that's what the word baptize means, is a total submersion. That, that could be used, but you're, gonna, you're still going to have to fight somebody's tradition over it, you know? That's a good question, though, because you're knocking on the door of what we're trying to get to here. Uh, how is it that, uh, well, let's take uh, baptizing a child. Why would you baptize a child? Once anti-Semitism had grown in the church and the church replaced Israel, then all of the, the uh, 
procedures that Israel used were now drawn over into the church. So since you circumcised the child to put him into the covenant relationship, baptism became the way you put that child in the covenant relationship. So whether you sprinkle, and that obviously for a child, you probably are not going to submerge him. But since he's a child, you're going to baptize, you sprinkle him. And even that scares him a little bit. You're not going to do too much pouring. I, I think the Eastern Orthodox still does pour over babies, if I remember right. They pour over babies. Um, that's, that's because you thought the church replaced Israel. And if the church replaced Israel, then you've got to look for a priesthood. Um, and the Scriptures teach us that every believer is a priest, so there's not a special ordained priesthood. You're going to have to come up with some way to get your children into the covenant. Wait a minute, what covenant? We, do we have a covenant? And once again, even when you look at the new covenant that's in Jeremiah 31, 31, the church believes they're in the new covenant. No, they're not. The church never had a new covenant because they never had an old covenant. Uh, so what they saw was, since there's a new covenant for Israel, that new covenant is for the church now because Israel's over. They blew their chance, and the church now has that chance. So you, you learn to practice all the stuff that they were practicing then. It gets complicated, doesn't it? Yeah, because now you, 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 you think just by simply reading the Word, it'll all be settled out. Uh, but everything has to do with your definitions, uh, if you if you define things differently, that we can read the same text and get completely different ideas from it. Okay. Other comments, questions, anything? Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah, a lot of times all I have to do is ask, what do you think of Jesus? That, I know it sounds like a, a, an odd thing, but just ask them, what do you think of Jesus? And listen to what they have to say about it. If he's, if he's just a good teacher, then you may be facing either an unbeliever or someone who's been demonized. Uh, the, the, he tells us in 1 John 4, test off every spirit. For not all the spirits are from Christ. And if it, if it will not confess that Jesus is the Christ, God come in the flesh, don't listen. Don't bother to go on further with it. Be done with that spirit. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us to test all the spirits. And so you, you put them to the test. And mostly the test is, what do you think of Jesus? That's the biggie. Sure. But there, there you've got two or three things that could be involved with that. One, she doesn't want to get in trouble with all kinds of authorities for having a, a religious ceremony going on in her business or whatever the service is that's going on there. So that may be something that's on her mind. Uh, she may have difficulties with that, that faith herself. Uh, that, that could be going on. It wouldn't necessarily mean that she's been demonized, but it would mean that she needs to have, she wants to separate business from her faith. Get those two things separated because she's not wanting trouble in that area. 
Yeah. All right. Anybody else got anything before we go? All right. Thank you guys for staying this long. Father, thank you so much for letting us have an opportunity to be together. We do ask you to help us have that discernment. We want that discernment. We want to know what's good. We want to know what's bad. We want to know what things you want us to be using and doing. Thank you for what you're going to do and the way that you're going to do it. Use us for your glory and honor in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much. We'll see you again on Sunday.